0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you um, very much for your very warm welcome. Uh, it has been uh, an exhausting privilege <laughs> to be able to move around the country and speak to Australians of many different backgrounds about this very important issue that we are all currently faced with. Uh, and I am very, very... Um, Uh, passionate about uh, this particular referendum in our country's history. Uh, I think, I feel as though it is probably the most divisive referendum we've ever had to um, be faced with in our country. It's dividing people uh, through their families, through their communities, uh, through their various different um, churches. Uh, right across the board and we should never have had to be subject to this level of division in our country. So, um, you know, it's been saddening to watch the sorts of uh, vilification that has uh, come about, the issue of race being so very prevalent uh, in our nation's discourse where I think as a nation, prior to this referendum um, taking place, we were working towards unity as a country. We were recognising that we needed to know more about our country's history in its entirety. It's good and it's bad. Uh, But most generally, everybody wants what's best for Australians of all backgrounds, but particularly, of course, our most marginalised. For me, I have watched over the years as uh, our most marginalised, our vulnerable, have been exploited for the purpose of agendas, various different agendas. And this is yet another one of those agendas. Changing our constitution uh, is not uh, a small ask. It's a huge ask, it's a huge undertaking and doing so along racial lines for me is one of the biggest red flags um, to begin with, with this issue. And knowing that our most vulnerable have been exploited for many different agendas and seeing them exploited for this particular agenda is another huge red flag. I'm a strong believer, uh, as I'm sure many of the Christian community is, um, that we should be treating each other equally, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of anything, any, any label that we are placed in or we give ourselves. We are all human beings in this remarkable country. We are all Australian citizens and we should all be treated as such. Uh, What concerns me greatly about this proposal is the fact that we are left asking questions. We are left with unanswered questions. Well, how is this going to improve anybody's life? How is, how are, you know, how is this entity going to operate? How is it going to bring about uh, the outcomes that we're all seeking for our most marginalised Australians? How will representatives be appointed or elected to this entity going forward? What does the legislation look like that will govern this entity? And all we're being told is, relax, don't worry about any of the detail, it's unnecessary. Just, just write yes and we'll figure it all out later. It's, it's, it's a modest proposal, it's a hand outstretched." well, mm, oh, that really concerns me. <laughs> that, that, that sort of um, language really concerns me, that, um, that those answers can't be given to those questions. And that tells me there is something else going on here, something else that the Australian people aren't privy to, that a handful of people are privy to, And they don't want the Australian people to know or to understand because I I think we'd find that the vast majority of us would not agree with what it is they're asking of the Australian people. You know, I don't like this concept either that it's built on, the suggestion that Indigenous Australians, that every single one of us are disadvantaged for no other reason but because of our racial heritage. That doesn't sit well with me. It's certainly not the truth. And the truth is that, yes, we're 3% of the population, but only 20% of Indigenous Australians are disadvantaged. And they're certainly not, uh, you know, I don't belong to that category, my wonderful colleague here today, Senator Kieran Little, she doesn't belong to that category. The proponents of The Voice don't belong to that category. They're all doing very well for themselves. Uh, and when we are told that, you know, if not now, then when, so that it might pull on our heartstrings to say, well, this is the only chance. That too is untrue. There are many ways that we can move forward, that we can help support uh, our marginalised. As Australians, as human beings, we all have a story of somewhere in our lives where we've perhaps had to overcome adversity. It's the human story, it's the human condition. And there are many Australians who understand and have the tools um, that one needs to learn, to understand how to overcome disadvantage, and that is all we need going forward. We need to be able to stop telling Indigenous Australians that they are victims because of what's happened in our country's history. Because by telling people they are victims, effectively we're removing their agency. We're telling them that no longer are their lives, you know, the responsibility of their own. That somehow it is a government that is going to rescue them or an advisory committee that's going to rescue them. As far as I can see, um, I don't know of many advisory committees that have improved many people's lives. Uh, (laughs) Uh, You know, this suggestion that this is something fantastic and new and never been done before, well, I'm pretty sure there are many uh, very expensive bureaucracies that exist, in fact there's over 3,000 of them uh, that have been tasked and funded to improve the lives of our most marginalised that have largely failed. Some of the proponents of the voice have been responsible for some of those failures through taxpayer funds, through being heads of some of these entities previously. So why then do they tell the Australian people that they've never had a voice, that we've never had a voice, when in fact we have had many voices for a long time? And why don't they take responsibility for the failures that have been their responsibility? And why is it now that they seek a transfer of power through our constitution? I'll tell you why. Because we have myself, we have Senator Karen Little, and we have nine other federal parliamentarians of Indigenous heritage, an over-representation in Australia's parliament for the first time in our country's history. No more will these individuals be the go-to advisers because we should be celebrating the fact that we have an over-representation of Indigenous Australians <laughs> within our federal parliament. <laughs> and not a single one of us required a constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament to, to be elected to federal parliament. We have got there through our own hard work and determination, our own self-belief. That is how we have got, got there. And this should be celebrated. Unfortunately, we are overshadowed by this agenda, this new agenda that's been put before us, that has, um, has been, you know, there's been the use of, of guilt politics and of emotional blackmail and gaslighting of the Australian people there has been the exploitation of the goodwill of good Australians who want to see outcomes for for Australia to get behind this uh, campaign. That is what the campaign has been dependent upon. And it has been suggested that if you don't support this, you're a dinosaur or something else. (laughs) That uh, (laughs) You're a racist, that's right. And all of those horrible things have been suggested because that is what emotional blackmail is all about. That is what the, the, the yes side has when they cannot demonstrate how this entity is supposed to support our most marginalised going forward. So <laughs> I love this country. I'd say I probably love it as much as you all here tonight. I love this country, and I don't want to see us divided along the lines of race. I don't want to see my family divided along the lines of race. I'm a mother of four sons. I gave birth to three of my sons. The, the youngest I didn't, but sometimes, you know, my other half is struggling with the fact that I, it sometimes it seems as though I gave birth to him, he takes after me in many ways. <laughs> but, um, but my youngest, he can't. He can't claim Indigenous heritage. But why should his big brothers have an extra say because of their racial heritage in this country? An extra say over him. What makes them more important than he is? That is not what equality is. That is not what I grew up with in terms of my Australian values as a proud Australian. You know, we have... We come from a country which has remarkable shared Australian values, wonderful shared Australian culture that has been pulled together by our various different backgrounds. Whether we belong to the first people of this country, whether we come from, you know, our ancestors came from other parts of the world, dispossessed of their own land, brought here in chains as convicts. That's my ancestry as well or whether it's the migrant community that are more recent to this country, that's my husband. He's a proud SCOSI right here. (laughs) We have created our wonderful Australian values together through those three pillars. That is what we have to be so incredibly proud of as a country. It is not something to be ashamed of, and when we are told we're a supposed racist country, we can proudly stand up and say, well, actually, no, we're not, and the evidence is there. That tells us we are not. It was the 1967 referendum where Australians stood up and said, yes, let's say yes to our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, let's let's tell them we're behind them, we back them all the way, we regard them as equal. We are equal to them, they are equal to us. We established that in 1967. So why would we want to create inequality now in 2023? That's what I can't stand for. As far as I'm concerned, I want for our country to be proud of who we are once again. We cannot begin to find the solutions to our problems if we don't have pride in who we are as a nation. We can't begin to find the solutions to our problems if we're teaching our children to be ashamed to call themselves Australian, if our babies are being taught in school to say sorry to Aboriginal people for stealing our land not how we teach our country to be proud of themselves. Yes, we need to learn our history in its entirety, the good, the bad, the ugly, that which we should be able to celebrate as well. That's what we need to do going forward. Guilt politics doesn't work. Identity politics doesn't work. Woke culture has been destroying our wonderful Australian values and we need to reignite our Aussie spirit again going forward. That's what we need to do. And there are ways forward, and myself and Karen, we have been working hard within the Senate to make sure that we want to clean up the systems that exist. We have an incredible democratic structure. It might not be perfect, but it is a lot better than many other nations and their systems. It is the best system for human beings to prosper under. We have been wanting to launch inquiries into understanding how the land councils, statutory authorities, Aboriginal organisations that are funded billions of dollars year in, year out are failing the most marginalised. We also want to understand how they're actually improving the lives of our most marginalised so we can continue to invest in those places. We want to know how to better reform those structures to bring about the outcomes that are required. We're not about creating a whole new entity and suggesting by putting it in our constitution it'll magically create better outcomes. We know that that is not the way forward. (laughs) So while it's been suggested we're a whole bunch of nasty individuals, if (laughs) if we are saying no to this referendum, I would suggest otherwise. I would suggest that we are saying no to separatism that has maintained marginalisation, we are saying no to the bullying and the gaslighting and the name-calling. We are saying no to identity politics and guilt politics. But we are saying yes to equality in our country. And we are saying yes to being proud to call ourselves Australian and reigniting that Australian spirit. So thank you very much.
1: Busy week. Look, um, I think my biggest concern with this referendum has nothing to do with the detail, uh, nothing to do with the Uluru Statement from the Heart, nothing to do with the Karma Langton Report, uh, and and nothing to do with what we haven't been told about the coming legislation. In, In fact, what they tell us is what worries me the most. They tell us that the powers that have been, will be granted if the nation says yes, uh, the powers that will be granted to the parliament for the next parliament and the one after that and a hundred years after that will be detailed and limited by the government, by the legislation that they create. To me, that says that it's also possible that any future government can create legislation to not put the Besser Block on the brakes, but on the accelerator, and give this undefined, unconstitutionally constrained body unlimited powers and unimagined powers. Um, what are your thoughts uh, about, about that? Is that something that, that we uh, should be extremely cautious of, or should we trust the government with brand new powers? <laughs>
0: Um, does the word trust and government ever go together? <laughs> uh, look, I think they are very real concerns. I mean, really, there's no guardrails around this um, proposal. Uh, how long is a piece of string, really? Um, there is there's so much, um, it, it's open slather basically. Nothing is off the table in terms of this proposal or legislation put around it. Um, Precedents that might be set by um, uh, by appeals taken to the High Court by this voice entity, which, by the way, is uh, you know the word advice, advi- advise, or advisory does not appear anywhere in the question or the proposed new chapter. This is about making representations to the executive um, on matters concerning Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, the executive determines who, uh, you know, who gets appointed as high court judges. If you have uh, members of this body, uh, and, and remembering that there are the constitutional right as any other bodies within the constitution, such as the parliament, um, such as the high court, um, but members of that who are clearly going to be unelected, they're going to be appointed. If these are radical individuals with a radical agenda, you, we don't know where they might go with it. Uh, and and you, we don't know whether they will determine that, um, you know, the appointments of high court judges is matters that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Therefore, we want to say on who's appointed and then there's an appointment of a radical high court judge The the opportunities are endless Mm. for what this means in terms of uh, a body with with constitutional power. uh, In that manner. Yeah,
1: might help us to hold it a bit higher. So the um, the wording that we will enshrine in the constitution forever, if we say yes to this, is uh, probably most dangerous clause three, the parliament shall, subject to the constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal. There's a double flexibility, a double ambiguity in this. It's, it's I mean, it was actually, it was either really incompetently written or really maliciously written.
0: I think the latter. <laughs> Extremely clever in terms of those who are seeking a transfer of power. It's been designed in such a way that gives them maximum benefit um, going forward. From um, as we've heard from our, uh, you know, the 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 proponents of the voice, particularly the the activists, they are talking about. um, They keep talking about treaty compensation, reparations, they're not talking about uh, ensuring that our most marginalised have better outcomes. We know what their agenda is. We, we've heard them over and again and they might try to gaslight and deny the Australian people, but the fact of the matter remains, those issues are what are on the top of their agenda um, and, and we know what that means. This, this, is, this is born out of grievance. This is not born out of want for better outcomes for our marginalised.
1: Yeah, and, and look, as a Christian conference, I've, I've got to say that's a very unhealthy attitude for any people, uh, to be motivated by an acting out of a, a root of bitterness. Um, that's something that's only going to have unhealthy fruit. Uh, the only thing that can come off that tree is, is going to be poisonous. And and that's you said it really well in your speech that nobody is unconcerned or unsympathetic towards the plight of those who are doing it hardest who are genuinely experiencing a a gap in outcomes um, so uh, we've had probably fifty years of attempts at bureaucracy uh, government um Interventions and and you could probably use some of the the uh, trigger words like um, imperialism and colonialism and trying to impose white man solutions onto uh, Aboriginal gaps in outcomes. So go through if you can some of the history of that and um, maybe Atsic is the one in most people's memory um, and and what went wrong and is there any kind of assurance other than Trust me, I'm from the government and I'm here to help.
0: Do we have long enough to um, (laughs) cover all of that off? Look, uh, you know, I mean, I think what's gone wrong is there have been many approaches that have been taken that are um, well-intended, but unfortunately, I think it's the separatism approach that has largely created the marginalisation uh, that's occurred and provided an environment for opportunists to prosper. That's, that's, that's what's happened. That's, that's absolutely what has happened. Um, you know, for traditional owners in the Northern Territory, for example, they are land rich but dirt poor. They are governed by the Land Rights Act and by bureaucracies, you know, the Northern Land Council and the Central Land Council um, that don't want to relinquish their power, but their role is redundant now. They are like a real estate agent um, that, you know, is a funnel for millions of dollars through royalties, but also federal funds. Um, They are now trying to broaden their remit when they don't have a clue as to, you know, some of the issues that they're now given responsibility for. You know, housing's one of them. There's recent conversation around, you know, attempting to uh, make education something of a priority uh, of theirs. But really, um, what they should be doing is they should have been phased out, they should have relinquished their um, responsibilities to traditional owners themselves uh, what we need to do is ensure that traditional owners can utilise their resources to be job creators, to move away from welfare dependency in remote communities, and that's what hasn't happened. If you want to see socialism working really well, go to a remote community in the Northern Territory. It's there on display. It's, it's dependency on welfare that has... Um, you know, removed the agency of Indigenous Australians and is why they suffer. Uh, You know, there's things like the uh, equal pay decision, which was well intended, but it meant that a lot of Aboriginal people lost their jobs because station owners couldn't afford to pay them anymore. That, coupled with access to alcohol, was the most destructive two things that could have occurred around the same time in our country's history. Uh, And then this notion that we keep being told that, you know, it's Indigenous people who can only fix Indigenous people. Well, why haven't the Indigenous organisations um, fixed all the problems since they have been funded, since they have been the voices um, all this time? Uh, and now we see an increase in those that like to uh, to to identify as Indigenous in our country uh, because, you know, there are opportunities in that. Um, and 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 this huge mess that continues to com, you know compile. Um, so for myself, um, for for Karen, for our colleagues, we want to we want to get our hands dirty and fix this mess up. That's what we want to do, and that's what hasn't been done. This voice proposes not to do that, but add to the mess. <clears throat>
1: So, I, I really enjoyed your speech to the National Press Club Broom Closet. I, I think one of the highlights was when you corrected the record um, and, and said, no, this man is my husband. <laughs> that, that was great. And uh, one of the other things I really loved was the promise of uh, when, and God willing, you become the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, uh, something along the lines of an audit of all of the programs and voices and lobby groups and advocacies and representations uh, and activists that get government funding right now and seem to have little to no accountability. Tell us more about that. What would that look like and what do you hope some of the outcomes might be? What do you think it will discover?
0: <laughs> look, absolutely. I mean, we have had four motions on the floor of the Senate in recent times to launch inquiries. Um, they've been voted down by the Greens, by the government, by uh, Senator David Pocock uh, as well. Uh, <laughs> You have to wonder why um, they they don't want transparency and accountability, even though this Prime Minister said that that's what he was going to be about uh, when it comes to these organisations. We would like to uncover the extent of um, the, you know, the lack of accountability, the extent of the misuse of funds, uh, the extent of opportunism um, in order to understand how we can fix those up. Um, we, you know, I, I, I'm sure if we launch these inquiries, we'd probably end up having to have a royal commission um, into this into this spending, and you know, I don't think we'd stop there when it comes to the you know Indigenous issues either. It's it's it certainly goes beyond that. It goes across all um, you know areas. Of, of, of government spending and um, I think this is a good place to start though because it's, it, we're talking about how it affects our most marginalised and how they, it's been acknowledged obviously by the government also that um, it's not working. So if it's not working, you can't just dream up a fantasy entity uh, and say that this is what's going to work when we can't be demonstrated, you fix, uh, you, you fix the system that's in place to make sure mm. it, it does work um, and certainly uh, an audit is about that, but not just the audit the inquiry and the argument is and you know we 've got Dean Parkin from the yes side and we've got heads of organizations saying oh no we're, all ready. we're already we already go through auditing processes we're already held to account um, Well, an inquiry gives the opportunity for those people who are supposed to be served by these organisations to speak, to be heard. You know, if you want to really offer a voice, that's what the inquiry is about, sitting and listening to those who are affected by the failures of these organisations. That's who we've got to hear from, not from the heads of the organisations themselves, Uh, We don't want to hear that this is racist to go and do this. You know, our uh, poor organisations, they're doing it hard, they're doing this, and no doubt there are those that are doing a great job as well. Um, But I'm sure it will highlight that there are many that aren't, and that's what needs to be better understood.
1: I I can give you a uh, biblical parable for that, that Jesus, uh, it's the parable of the talents, where a bunch of servants were given different amounts of money and, and those that invested it wisely and gave a return on investment uh, for the master, which in the political situation would be the, the taxpayers, um, they were given more. Uh, and then those who were audited at the end of the day and acted in fear and timidity and, and produced no return on investment, no positive effect and benefit, the funds were taken off them and given to those who are doing good work with it mm. uh, and that seems like an appropriate uh, appropriate way to it's not, how would the the clear objective stated by Anthony Albanese in the Uluru statement from the heart uh, what comes next so uh, noel pearson has said that voice is door 1 and treaty is door 2 that's unequivocally their stated agenda, and this is only step one. It would be silly for anybody to think the question on the referendum is the only thing at question. It is step one. Uh, So a Macarada commission. Now Macarada is, we're told, interpreted as um, something along the lines of Kumbaya, Um, peace after a, a dispute, uh, but um, an ABC article says uh, there's a, a young new word. The lady has said, uh, as a primary source, I think as qualified as any, that it literally means a spear through the thigh, so that you can never hunt or walk properly ever again. Uh, some kind of ceremonial justice. So if a Macarata Commission is now empowered to uh, lead us into treaty. Uh, and reparations, what might that look like for us?
0: <laughs> well, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, you're absolutely right in terms of what the concept of Makarata means in the Yulungu language and certainly what it means to um, you know, traditional Aboriginal people uh, with regard to uh, one has to offer themselves up for a form of payback, uh, a spearing in the leg. If an injustice has occurred, someone is responsible for that. Uh, And that is the only way that a peace can be settled is, you know, through blood being spilled. Basically, that's really what it's all about. But, you know, the government like to gloss over these things and make out as though, no, this this is all about Kumbaya. Um, But the only way you can actually reach that is through the very, um, the concept of forgiveness, you know, which hasn't happened yet. That is the final circle of closure in terms of healing, not Makarata. Um, But we know, because we have heard the proponents of The Voice talk about though what those next steps are going forward. Um, There is, you know, contempt for for non-Indigenous Australia uh, by proponents of The Voice, this suggestion that there has to be some form of reparations. That is what the activists seek. That is what the grievance industry seeks from the Australian people. Um, And that is the most dangerous element of all of this going forward. Uh, And, you know, (laughs) no matter how much the ABC try to spin it, uh, no matter how much the Prime Minister tries to spin it and deny even though he's seen dancing with his treaty voice, voice treaty truth top on, we know that the, those next steps are what is um, going to occur. We, we've had a, the, the door's been swung wide open. It's not like, you know, we're we're trying to find out and discover. We know, that's, that's what's been said. You can't have a treaty with your own citizens, for starters. If we look at the processes that have taken place, if we look at Victoria, for example, um, the truth-telling. Now, you know, I often wonder why they twist words because there's a difference between truth-telling and telling the truth. Truth Truth-telling is about creating a truth that they believe is so, as opposed to actually telling the truth. The Truth-telling Commission um, have held their, you know, sort of royal commission process. Um, but all they've done is gather stories of grievance and through that they've determined that they need to now, making demands on the Victorian government to establish separate laws for Indigenous people, um, separate child protection laws for kids of Aboriginal heritage in Victoria because based on this idea that you know, Aboriginal kids are removed at a far greater rate, which is true, but we have to look at why. That is the case. That element is being completely and utterly ignored throughout all of this. We know um, through the, R- the Royal Commission of the Black Deaths in Custody that there was no systemic racism found to be a, a, any a factor in the high rates of Indigenous Australians. Uh, we know that, you know, Indigenous kids, while they're being removed at far greater rates, it's not because of systemic racism. Is because our kids experience the highest rates of neglect, abuse, sexual abuse, and that is what we should be focusing on, ensuring that these kids' human rights are being upheld and they're not being subjected to that as Australian citizens in this country. (laughs) (laughs) Just quickly though. But that's what we'll expect if we go down the path of treaty, is those demands that will be made by the grievance industry. It's it's not about problem solving, it's about demands. Uh, And we we can't continue down that path uh, and allow ourselves to be vilified and called racist for saying no to this approach.
1: there's so much in what you just said so many different um, notes i could I could pick up on and and uh, in my sermon later tonight i'm I'm going to pick up on the note of forgiveness uh, and we're going to look at a video of the forgiveness cross um, that's that's been erected in the outback by uh, at the initiative of um, aboriginals there uh, so it, it I guess the question that I want to pick up on that note with then is is what kind of readiness, willingness, appetite is there for Aboriginals to in, – in the remote communities, I, I'm pretty sure I know what it is um, in in the ABC and the chattering classes, but um, in the re- remote communities, what kind of um, interest is there in a better way, uh, which for want of a better term, we could encapsulate with the word forgiveness that they're actually, how much does that enter into the dialogue and the concern about how we do move forward?
0: Look, I think it's a significant part of, um, you know, for a lot of remote Indigenous people, sorry, they belong to various different church groups uh, and the element of forgiveness is certainly, you know, very much a part of it. Um, I'll give an example so, in Walpere Country, and in, in my family, experienced the last sanctioned massacre to occur in 1928. Uh, there were survivors in my family from that massacre that you know, I'm from as a child. Um, and uh, sorry, who was
1: that perpetrated
0: by? So that was perpetrated by um, white policemen in 1928. Uh, what occurred was. Um, A Warripuri man had been, um, had killed a white um, dingo hunter uh, and that sort of instigated a response from police. Um, That had come about, there's various different forms but, what happens is when, what happened back then, if an outsider were to come into our country, they would be, you know, offered a wife from one of the Warapuri men because a single man is considered dangerous and you have to civilise him with a wife. So (laughs) (laughs) That is what often occurred. Now, the man who, um, you know, polygamy, polygamy was a common practice, still is in, in some places. Um, uh, uh, old, the old fellow bullfrog gave his wife to this white dingo hunter, but in return he had to compensate him, so he had to provide him with flour and tea and sugar and rations and all those sorts of things. And there was a dispute. He didn't like him. He decided, he, he speared him and killed him. So... Um, that is what instigated this response from the police, but it was headed up by a particularly nasty policeman who didn't like Aboriginal people, um, and you know they went through and killed as many Warri and Amajara and uh, as they could that they came across. Um, My family have always said, you know, part of that responsibility was that occurred because that fella killed the white fella. He went and hid in a cave when the massacre occurred and he ended up, you know, in traditional terms he should have offered himself up but uh, nothing happened to him and his wife was also killed in that massacre. You know, our family knows exactly what happened with that. Um, so they, they pass they, they put part of that responsibility onto him for his actions as well. But 75 years after that took place, our family held a commemorative ceremony. We invited um, the descendants of those who had killed our family. And we we shared it with them because that for us was a moment of, was a moment of forgiveness and recognition that, you know, our country's history, which was more recent for us in Central Australia, was, was difficult at times. It was hard. There was the violence on the frontier. Um, you know, it was kill or be killed before white fellows came to our country as well. So we recognised everything was tough back then but we wanted to move forward understanding we were as one country together now and embracing the descendants of the killers of our family. And that to me was one of the greatest acts of reconciliation and that act of forgiveness that meant healing and moving forward together. And that is what has been missing from a lot of the story in Australia right now. Uh, instead of that final act taking place, we continue to be, um, you know, be confronted with demands over and over and over again. The, I think the concept of reconciliation is often weaponized so as to put more demands on the Australian people. Um, but, there are many Aboriginal people, particularly in remote communities, who understand we're all, in fact, human beings, you know. We're all human beings and we all belong in this country. And it is those elders that taught me, certainly, in terms of traditional Aboriginal culture and thinking, you know, the creation time in, in the in the dreaming meant that our creator ancestors left their spiritual essence in the ground after creating the land and when we're conceived The baby spirit has leapt from the ground into our mother's belly, giving us our personal connection to the land. And my elders taught me that it didn't matter what your racial heritage was, if you were conceived in this country, you're connected spiritually to this land through that baby spirit connection. And you belong here just as anybody else, just as my ancestors of 40,000 years ago. That is what my elders from remote communities believe.
1: That's, uh, that's very interesting and it, and it works in our favour for, uh, for the message that we have. And, and of course, the Bible says it differently. It says that our spirit comes, uh, is created by God uh, and, and upon our death it returns to God. But he also very clearly in Acts 17 says that from one man, God created the humans of every race and that we are all related by our common ancestry to that one man uh, and that he created the nations uh, and he established the, the times and the seasons and their boundaries uh, so that we we might um, search for God and, and actually come to know him. Um, now you mentioned that uh, it was kill or be killed before European settlement. Um, Is there any need for reconciliation and forgiveness between different family groups and language groups in Aboriginal culture?
0: Time. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Um, I I think it's... Yeah, yeah, once I start talking... You'll stick with it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Yeah... Look, certainly um, there, there, is, there is, you know, obviously the problem with lumping us together as a group of Australians based on our uh, racial identity is no one, there is a lot of conflict. There is always, you know, or oh, she doesn't speak for me because she's not my mob or that person doesn't speak for me because they're not my mob um, and, you know, that's often, Um, the excuse to maintain conflict as well uh, and not find common ground for the purpose of working together to create improvements. And that's why I think the voice isn't going to work either because it's going to provide another platform for that conflict to take place between Aboriginal groups. There are many groups that that need to... um, work together better and to accept one another more so. I think even more so between Indigenous groups than Indigenous Australia and the rest of the country, there's a lot of reconciliation and forgiveness that um, needs to take place um, in that way. But but, yeah, always.
1: (laughs) So what do the Indigenous people in your community in the Northern Territory feel about this whole debate? Uh, how aware are they of it, how aware, uh, aware are they of the various points made by either side, you know, ten reasons for voting no, eight reasons for voting yes, um, what do they think about the whole proposal and, and have they, to the best of your knowledge and the people that you know, uh, are they putting a lot of hope in this to improve their lives, change their lot and uh, brighten their future?
0: Okay. (laughs) I think there's a lot of scepticism amongst a lot of Aboriginal people. Uh, Certainly those, there are those that are being influenced or coerced by Aboriginal organisations to support this concept because Aboriginal organisations favour this idea of a constitutionally enshrined power. Um, Certainly the Central Land Council and the Northern Land Council and the Northern Territory uh, feel, you know they've they've just dis- determined their position and they're now um, exploiting marginalised Aboriginal people and communities to get on board and to support this when they don't really know what the detail is. Um, that this idea that oh yeah we'll have a voice in parliament okay you know that sounds like a good idea all right I'll get behind that but. Again, I mean, if the average Australian doesn't know what the detail is, how is somebody in a remote community who, um, you know, whose English reading and writing skills aren't the same as as a suburban Australian, uh, how are they going to cl- clearly understand this concept to actually make an effective informed decision on it? Uh, you know, walking around Alice Springs, I've got, you know, I've had a lot of Aboriginal people come up to me and say, I'm not, I'm not voting yes, this is just them city mob again. You know, trying to tell us more about the bush, what to do, how to think. That, that's, that's been, you know, their um, approach toward what this is because they've seen it over the years. They've seen, you know, them being exploited for the purpose of uh, city people's agendas uh, including, you know, elite, uh, you know, middle class Aboriginal people um, whose lives are completely removed from those in remote communities. Um, you know, they're the sorts of differing attitudes uh, toward this, you know, that, I, that I've heard. But certainly those that belong to organisations are sort of more likely to um, support this concept. Now, I think that it is incumbent upon like the Northern Land Council and the Central Land Council to in fact um, inform the people that they're supposed to represent and people in the bush communities as to the, the arguments for both sides so that they can make an informed decision, not to persuade them one way or the other. That's what I think their role should be, but it is not. Um, And that's the other concern about this is that if this voice were to get up, it would become a campaign vehicle for a Labor government, you know, to ensure Labor maintains power also, because that's what we see within Aboriginal organisations. In the Northern Territory, they're out there campaigning on behalf of Labor at every election this is what this will become. Um, It could be further radicalised by the Greens.
1: (laughs) So, final question, and and then I'd I'd like to um, actually pray for the referendum and for our Indigenous brothers and sisters um, before we, we thank you for your time. But the final question is, if people you know, share my concerns that this is a blank check of power for a parliament and not Aboriginal people um, or at the expense or, or vehicle of Aboriginal people. Uh, if they're concerned about, or for other reasons, concerned about the division and the separatism and the bitterness and and uh, the root of this tree, then um, what can people of goodwill who want to see a better way for helping people do to help... Um, uh, us promote the no case for this referendum.
0: Well, I think um, you know. Obviously, we can always do with more volunteers. Uh, Volunteerforno.com.au or um, get in contact with Karen's office. Also, as to how you can support, I think it's important to ensure that um, undecided uh, individuals get uh, are well informed as to. Uh, the reasons why we shouldn't be supporting, um, you know, s- racial separatism within our constitution, uh, and uh, you know the arguments certainly that that um, we've been presenting, I, I hope, has been helpful for everybody uh, to understand what it means. Um, For us as a country, this is a huge decision, a huge undertaking uh, and the consequences are, uh, you know, very concerning uh, if if a yes vote succeeds. Um, And really speaking to your family members, having those conversations with family members in in respectful, obviously, you know, in a respectful way Um, and, you know, I'm always often, you know, open to those who want to, uh, challenge me, whether it's personally or not, to have a conversation and quite often, I mean, stopped on the street in, in Mount Barker this morning a couple of times to speak to individuals who are saying, yes, 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 but, you know, I, f- I feel bad about, you know, if I'm, I'm to vote no. I say, well, that's, don't feel bad to vote no. Um, understand that there are other ways forward understand that there are um, Indigenous representatives with lived experience working really hard um, within parliament to ensure that we can bring about those practical um, ways through our system of equality that already exists. Um, So really it is about, yeah, it's about having those conversations with family members, with your neighbours and, and of course, you know, in the most respectful way possible. i I really don't like to see the way this has brought nastiness out in people mm-hmm. um, I'm seeing Ray Martin on Sunday <laughs> I've got a dinosaur cookie to give him yeah. <laughs> 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 um, you know and i'll I'll tell him I'll forgive him for his comments uh, but um it should always be done respectfully as far as I'm concerned and being well informed is the, you know, ensuring that Australians are well informed is the best thing we can do.
1: Could yeah. you join with me and let's, um, let's pray for the referendum? Let's pray for our nation. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of mercy and grace and justice in Jesus' name and we ask that you would grant every citizen in this nation uh, wisdom to know how to vote in this election. We pray that you would give the leaders of each campaign uh, wisdom and charity to treat each other with with love and respect uh, and the sincerity that this debate deserves we pray that you would guide us as a nation so that we may truly deliver justice that we may truly deliver the uh, best possible outcomes for every person uh, born and destined here we pray that that uh, the cross of forgiveness would be um, paramount and present in our lives that whether we uh, believe in your son jesus or or whether we believe in in just nice uh, charitable outcomes for our fellow man; that there would be a putting away of of habits of bitterness and strife and hostility, and an embracing of unity and harmony and uh, goodwill towards each other. Not looking for uh, compensation or, or um, vengeance, but uh, looking for the best outcomes, not just for ourselves but for each other. We pray, Lord that uh, the, the new lyrics in our anthem would indeed be prophetic and that you would make Australia advance, one and free, that we would have unity and liberty in this nation. Uh, this is uh, the best possible thing we can hope for. We pray that uh, the, the damage from this debate would not be long, would be quickly healed, and we pray that uh, the outcome would glorify you and uh, truly advance every single person in this nation and we pray these things. Lord I also pray for Senator Jacinta Price and Senator Karen Little with us here tonight uh, as well as Warren Mundine and I also pray for the leaders of the Yes campaign that you would give them strength and health and endurance to run this race and, and finish it with strength and joy. In Jesus name, amen. Would you join me in thanking Senator Jacinta Price?